Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55 on the AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio Free CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. The problem that has no name, which is simply the fact that American women are kept from growing to their full human capacities is taking a far greater toll on the physical and mental health of our country than any known disease. Betty Frieden. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Dr Kate Farhall about compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian representation. Welcome to the program. It's lovely to be here. Could you give us a bit of background information about yourself? Sure. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at RMIT University, recently started there. And prior to that, I did a PhD at Melbourne University analysing women's magazines and how they talk about sex and relationships and how that changed um, since the 70s. So what was it that inspired you to study compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian representation? There were kind of a few factors that came together at once. I'd previously studied uh, women's magazines in my honours year at university, but looking more specifically at representations of the sex industry. But when I moved into my PhD, I wanted to look more at sex and relationships more generally. And while there's a lot of research out there that talks about the way in which these magazines are overwhelmingly heterosexual, and I think we all recognise that, they're known for, you know, eight different ways to blow his mind in the bedroom, etc., And while there's a lot of kind of academic literature that acknowledges this, there's not a lot that talks about how that operates or how these magazines weave a sort of exclusively heterosexual world and work to invisibilise other ways of being sexual. So I decided that this was a bit of a gap in the literature that I, I wanted to look at. And also being a lesbian woman myself, it had a bit of a personal tone to it as well. I wanted to learn about how, you know, my relationships or my experiences were being represented in popular culture and sort of critique them from a feminist perspective. Yeah, it must be really awful for young women sort of just sort of thinking about their sexuality and reading these magazines and having having any any sort of experience of theirs or any feelings of, you know, of their own sexuality just ignored or really put down. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, we do know that these magazines, while they women's magazines usually claim to be for an over 18 demographic, but we know that girls as young as around 13 or so get really stuck into them. And I can remember doing so in, in my teens as well. And those are really formative years of your life. You're learning about sex and sexuality. You might be starting to experiment as well. And we also know that these magazines do have sort of tangible effects on the way that uh, young women understand the world, their understandings of sexuality, the way they relate to their own bodies and to their own understandings of their femininity. There are lots of studies out there that show that reading magazines can make you feel differently about yourself, essentially. So if these magazines aren't reflecting, you know, the diversity of, of lesbian desire or they aren't validating people's experiences as, as meaningful and equally valuable in society, then that can definitely have a, a detrimental effect potentially on, on people reading them. Could you explain about the theory of pornification? Yeah, sure. So uh, this was one aspect of my PhD research where I looked at using pornification theory, which is basically the idea that over the last several decades, the pornography industry and its sort of themes and ideas have begun to sort of seep into pop culture by the use of pornographic language, visuals, the increased accessibility and referencing to pornography in mainstream media. And so I wanted to look in women's magazines and I looked at once every 10 years since the 1970s and I wanted to see whether this pornification was evident in women's magazines. And magazines are great to look at because they don't change a lot over the decades, so you can kind of compare like with like over a long period of time. Uh, and what I found was that between the 70s and the early 2000s in particular, porn was increasingly kind of introduced into the bedroom. So it was spoken about in a far more normalised way and in a way that positioned it as a form of sex education and as a sort of raunchy, erotic thing to include in your sex life. But what I also found was that at the same time, male sexuality took a more central place within the magazines and pleasing men, particularly in sexual scenarios, became more and more centralised within the magazines. And so I argued that this pornification was constructing an understanding of sexuality based on men's sexual pleasure, essentially, and that the magazines were really encouraging women to, to participate in this paradigm whereby men should be pleased at all times and women's uh, pleasure is secondary to that. Now, look, I've got to admit, I haven't actually read Cleo or Cosmopolitan. So uh, could you give us an idea about the general articles within these magazines? Yeah, um, great question. <laughs> well, one interesting thing I found looking over such a long period of time was that the the style of the articles uh, changed really markedly. So in the 70s, there was a lot more emphasis on longer text items, often engaging with society in quite a critical way. So there might be more social commentary pieces, more political pieces, more educative articles um, explaining or discussing certain aspects of the social realm. And over the decades, particularly from sort of the 90s onwards, there's a huge uptick in consumerist content in particular, so fashion, beauty, what to buy, what to wear, and advertising content comes along with that, obviously, as well as articles that talk about sex in very mechanical terms. So that stereotypical women's magazine, you know, 
three rotates to the right and then wiggle your hips or <laughs> etc you get a lot more of that as as you move towards the 21st century and also more articles focusing on men as sort of projects that women need to work on or understand so how to construct a relationship through emotional and sexual labor directed towards your male partner so these kinds of articles really increased over time and um, in the sort of latter uh, magazines I looked at in the 21st century, there was also an interesting mix of discourses. So while there was some appropriation of feminist language or ideals, so uh, these magazines often talk about being strong and independent or empowered, there was also an increasing emphasis on self-regulation. So readers were encouraged to discipline their bodies in certain ways, whether that's through dieting or uh, exercise. They were encouraged to also discipline their minds, so to think in certain ways or behave to other people in their life in certain ways and sort of control their emotions and put others' emotional needs before theirs. Um, so there was this real increase in, in the regulation of the self coming through in the magazines but to answer your question more broadly, there's a lot of fashion, there's a lot of makeup, and a lot of sex, basically, are the three main main aspects of women's magazines. So do you think that, uh, that the magazines have purposely used some language like how to be empowering to yourself and how to be a strong, independent woman, and then going on about the self-regulation, do you think that these magazines are trying to imprint on young women's minds that they are feminists by doing these certain things? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Particularly in the last magazines I analysed, which were from 2013, you really saw more of an sort of vocal embrace of feminism and feminist ideas. And I would argue that that's because we were kind of coming into an upsurge in feminist activism around 2012 onwards, and that's sort of culminated in things like the Me Too movement that's going on at the moment. So there is a, a far stronger narrative of feminism in those 2013 magazines. But the problem is that this isn't compatible with pretty much everything else going on in these magazines, which is quite problematic for women and orients women towards pleasing men and basically shoring up existing patriarchal structures. So there's a disconnect between the two things that they're saying, but they're being woven in together. So it's not even like, you know, one article is very feminist and everything's great, and one article on a completely different topic is very anti-feminist and problematic. These narratives are being interwoven so that feminism is kind of being colonised or, you know, subsumed into anti-feminist ideas as well so it's all becoming very complicated and it's hard to kind of untangle these threads and work out what's positive and and what's not I don't think there's a sort of a conscious desire to use feminism for you know terrible ends I think that's just the the social moment we're in at the moment where there's confusion and and misunderstanding and maybe sometimes a bit of conscious desire to sell products using feminism obviously but I, I don't think that's always the case I think sometimes it's just the way society is kind of melded different things together in ways that may not function very well. So what type of references are there to female-to-female -female sexuality? Yeah, well, this was a really interesting aspect of my research. Um, there hasn't been a lot 
done in terms of magazines, trying to understand how female-female sexuality is, is described or represented. And what I found was that there were some distinct phases that occurred across the time period I looked at. So in the 1970s, we're in the midst of sort of second wave feminism, gay and lesbian liberation. So the references to lesbianism or lesbian desire tend to be actually quite either educative, so trying to explain what is this concept, what does it mean, you know, how can we understand it, or social commentary based, so taking an issue and discussing it. So one really prominent example that I found in a Clio magazine from 1973 was a whole article dedicated to exploring the concept of lesbian mothers and what that meant. And look, for the most part, it was a relatively positive article. It did talk about whether having a lesbian mother might be problematic for children, but it pretty much came out in the end saying these are families like any other and we should respect them. But it was a very, very long and involved discussion along the way. But then in the 80s, you see that kind of content really drop away. There are only kind of passing mentions to women's same-sex attraction, and they're often decontextualised or not unpacked or explored in any way. In the 90s, what we see is a real shift where we move into this phase of lesbian chic. So there's this idea that women, and particularly celebrity women, might sort of flirt with the idea of lesbianism but then go back to their male partner at home. So one of the main examples used is uh, there was a 1993, I think, cover of Vanity Fair that had Cindy Crawford sort of in this erotically charged position with Katie Lang. And so they talk about this as being so edgy and racy and exciting, but then they talk about the fact that Cindy's got Richard Gere back at home and that's great, so she can go home to him, everything's fine. So it's kind of a straightening out of lesbian desire. It's made safe as long as we can go back to men and it's made safe as long as the women involved are normatively feminine and beautiful and as long as they're still sexually available to men and still interested in men. So lesbianism is something you can play around with that's titillating to the guys and then you can go home and and be an appropriately feminine woman with your man. And then in the early sort of 2000s, which is the next point I look at, you can really see the way in which this lesbian chic that was mostly talked about in celebrity terms now has moved into what theorists tend to call heteroflexibility. So the idea that women and young girls or girls in their teens can sort of play around with the idea of lesbianism, go to parties, kiss girls and do it for the guys and have a bit of fun with it. So there are a few articles that I analysed from this time that present women's confessions about their lesbian experiences. But what's interesting about these confessions is that mostly they either involve men, so a threesome kind of situation, or they're for for the male gaze, so men are positioned as voyeurs or as benefiting from women's sexuality in that way, or other kinds of ways in which women's lesbian desire is kind of co-opted for men or for heterosexuality. And what's interesting is that a lot of these confessions that are presented go on to finish their little anecdote with, but I'm not, I'm not a lesbian, I have a boyfriend now, etc. So it's a really strong rejection of lesbianism as a label and as a sort of permanent state of being in terms of their sexuality. So I argue that this kind of represents 
lesbian desire as an adjunct to heterosexuality. So it's something you can do on the side. It's something that can be kind of assimilated into your heterosexual character, but that doesn't need to be something that you live on a day-to-day basis. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Dr. Kate Farhall about compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian representation. Uh, Now, you sort of touched on the term heteroflexibility. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So this was a term that came out of the United States about 15 or so years ago. And it apparently kind of emanated from college campuses, where all good terminology on sexuality (laughs) comes from. But it was first used by a woman called Laurie Essig, who was a lecturer who had kind of heard students using this term. And basically she described it as to denote people who primarily understand themselves as heterosexual and orient their kind of sexual and relationship uh, direction towards the opposite sex, but they remain open to sexual experiences or possibly even sort of romantic relationships uh, with people of the same sex. But she makes an interesting point in that she talks about how maybe this term might be a bit problematic, although she leaves it a little bit open, because it involves this explicit rejection of a kind of permanent or stable attraction to the same sex. So by saying you're heteroflexible, you are sort of rooting your sexuality in in that hetero mindset. So you're saying, I'm not one of those same-sex attractive people. I'm still heterosexual. I just like to do these things on the weekend. So it's kind of both kind of being complicit in in an othering or a, a sort of marginalisation of those people who do identify as lesbian or even as bisexual because that's still claiming that I have an ongoing commitment to relationships with people of the same sex. So it's kind of distancing oneself from those people and thereby essentially putting them down by saying, you know, I, want, I don't want to be associated uh, with, with that type. But also it kind of means that same-sex desire can be kind of subsumed within heterosexuality and it means that arguably sort of lesbian desire in this way removes or loses some of its kind of political force or its its ability to destabilise kind of normative understandings of heterosexuality. So it's sort of a, an interesting term, mainly used in the academic literature these days. I haven't actually heard someone turn around and tell me they're heteroflexible. So maybe it never made it to Australia, I'm, I'm not sure. But it's also talked about in the literature sometimes as being mostly straight. So one is mostly straight, but dabbles on the weekend or at times, you know, in lesbian experiences potentially. <laughs> Do you think that lesbian articles in these magazines are really a true portrayal of lesbianism or is it just a portrayal of what heterosexuals envisage lesbianism to be? Yeah, I think, you know, lesbianism obviously comes in many shapes and forms and there isn't isn't one way of doing it. Um, But I think that particularly in the magazines from the early 2000s where I found this heteroflexibility was the strongest that's really presenting one 
form of lesbian desire and one that's arguably quite problematic for the reasons I've kind of touched on already. But, you know, on a more positive note, the uh, newest magazines I looked at were from 2013 and there was kind of some mixed messages in there, but there were some positive elements. So there were a couple of articles that used a lesbian couple as one of several examples talking about a different theme. So, for example, there was an article that talked about bridging cultural divides in your relationship. So if your partner comes from a culturally distinct background from your own how do you navigate that particularly with extended family and within this article there are about you know five or so sample couples that were interviewed and one of them was a lesbian couple and that wasn't treated as anything bizarre or anything erotic or raunchy or different it was just another another example of of navigating the difficulties of relationships in the 21st century so I think you know that's an indication that maybe we're moving towards a more positive and inclusive representation of lesbian women in popular culture. But at the same time, in those 2013 magazines, I also found that there was this discourse that arose around the idea of the girl crush or having a celebrity crush on another woman. And while, on the one hand, you can argue that's a really positive thing because it shows that these magazines are happy to kind of chit-chat in a girly fashion about being attracted to other women and it's okay and it's normalised. So on the one hand, you can look at it like that and say, this is great, it's playful, it's accepting, it shows progress. But what I actually argued was that, again, it's kind of tipping the hat or nodding to lesbian desire, but at the same time rejecting it. Because lesbian women don't turn around and say, I've got a girl crush on Samantha. (laughs) They say, I've got a crush on Samantha, or I'm really into Samantha, or I'd really like to get to know Samantha, or something like that. We don't say girl crush. So again, it's another way of saying, I'm heterosexual, but, you know, I, I have a slight interest in this woman. But also the context in which it was used was often incredibly platonic so it would be I have a girl crush on this celebrity because she's got such a great voice she's such a great singer or I love her fashion style you know she's my latest girl crush and and these are not not reasons that women fall in love with other women or that women want to sleep with other women these are just I like her hair so it was kind of an asexual version of lesbianism so I argue that that terminology is quite problematic because it actually kind of invisibilizes lesbianism as a reality and as a lived experience as being a lesbian woman. So yeah, some pros and cons in the later magazines, um, but I guess we'll see how it goes in in the future. What have the changes been in sex and relationship content over time in women's magazines? Yeah, there were a few kind of main differences that I found and also a lot of similarities. So the kind of two main findings of my research that were quite interesting was firstly that the kind of dominant heterosexual paradigm really stayed the same from the 1970s until the present. So basically find a man, lock him in, make a nice home with him, have some children. That kind of, you know, stereotypical standard traditional heteronormative narrative that was still in place across the magazines. What changed was the language and the way in which you might go about catching and keeping your man. (laughs) But that goal of finding a man was definitely consistent uh, across the kind of 40-year period that I looked at. However, at the same time, there were a lot of more surface-level changes across that time period. And what I particularly noticed was that 
they tended to rise and fall with the changes in the feminist movement. So in the 1970s, when feminism was, you know, really strong, we're in the middle of second wave feminism, there's a lot of discussion of feminist ideas. I found that the sexual and relationship content in the magazines was not ideal, but it was relatively positive. There was a lot of discussion about how what was good for women in relationships and how women could live happy lives with or without men, mostly with them, but occasionally without. And then we kind of go through the 80s and the 90s and those kind of discussions about sexuality and about relationships that are really kind of trying to grapple with these ideas fall away. And they're replaced by consumerist content, by more fashion, and by more articles that are kind of oriented towards placating men in different ways. And these things kind of culminate in the early 21st century. So what I found was that gender norms became more rigid over that time, which you might find surprising. You'd think gender norms are are getting better, but... No, I found between sort of the early 70s and the early 2000s, there became a greater emphasis on kind of performing appropriate femininity and on on pleasing men as well. And then at the same time, there was this kind of eroticization of lesbian desires, this kind of flirtation that wasn't a real option for women. And sort of those social commentary discussions really disappeared. But then in 2013, those things started to reemerge a bit and the kind of emphasis on pleasing your man dropped away a a little bit and there was greater acceptance of of lesbian relationships. So things kind of seemed to be getting better over that time. So I argued that essentially, may not sound very surprising, but basically feminism works. (laughs) You know, when feminism is strong, women's magazines tend to be more positive for women and give women more options, essentially. When feminism has gone missing or it's uh, not part of the kind of cultural discussion, women's magazines become more kind of oriented towards men and more problematic for women. So I found that really interesting. I think we all assume that we're kind of on a linear upward trend that society isn't perfect, that but that we're kind of moving towards a better future. But I found there was a bit more complexity to it than that. Yeah, so do you have any future study plans? Well, I've kind of taken a bit of a career sidestep. So my background obviously is in feminist media studies and, and political science, but I've moved into a department for my postdoc research that's more focused on industrial relations and the workplace. So I'm still focusing on kind of relationships and and women, obviously, and taking a feminist perspective. But the current research I'm just starting to work on is looking at how uh, workplaces can either kind of mitigate or prevent violence against women. So through things like domestic violence leave and other kind of workplace provisions or programs, how can we support victims or manage perpetrators appropriately or otherwise kind of improve domestic and family violence situations or or minimize them at least so still sex and relationships are definitely central but yeah taking a slightly different approach but it is exciting to do something that's very tangible and very practical and kind of moving into that more hands-on place much as I love discussing cultural narratives and much as they are still very important Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you. And I've been speaking to 
Dr. Kate Farhall about compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian representation. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. And stay tuned for Are You Looking at Me?